Good morning and welcome backwards to Bodhi Speak. It has been a very good minute since I've done a podcast. I've been doing a lot of traveling <coughs> and it's been very, very busy with all of the facets of communal reality and so on and so forth and many different things. So it's a very interesting time. And that being said, it's always been a very interesting time. There's never been a boring moment in human existence. People like to say this is, you know, thrilling, exciting times, but reality is it's always been like that. The present moment, regardless of where or when you are, is always the most excellent and interesting and fascinating place and time to be. And obviously though, externally speaking, there's some pretty unique, interesting things happening in the world. And a lot of chaos is happening, or at least it's so it appears. It appears to be a lot of chaos if you read the news and so on. Whether or not that's actually the case is debatable because I've heard some people say that there's actually been more peace at this point in time than ever before. And so that discrepancy right there between perhaps what you see on the news and what might actually be happening in reality is on some level more or less the focal point of this podcast which in essence could be summed up as focus um and before we kind of get into all that what inspired this podcast was the work of sebastião salgado who is a brazilian photographer still around and he did this really excellent book that I came across called Amazonia. Uh, photography, right? It's pretty much all photos. I wish there was more text. Uh, I would have loved to have read more about some of the backstory of what I was looking at. And it's a massive coffee table book. It goes for about like 120 bucks or something like that on Amazon. I uh, came across it and just depicting a lot of the uncontacted or uh, you could say maybe rare I don't know if rare is the right word but uncontacted and remote that's a better word than rare remote tribes of the Brazilian Amazon um, specifically you know a couple like the Yawanawa and the Zoe tribes and uh, Hunikuin tribes, and just really fascinating, like a whole, you know, hundreds of different tribes that never heard of before, you know, totally remote, living in fairly pristine conditions in the Brazilian Amazon, pretty um, close to nature as one could possibly get, and beautiful, epic photographs. And if you haven't heard of Sebastião Salgado, you should check him out because his work is very famous and very well known. And there was a documentary done about him that I watched recently. And the documentary is called Salt of the Earth. And before I even get into anything about the documentary, just going into the title, I was researching Salt of the Earth. And what I came across was that this is a very famous phrase in the Bible. And it's interesting because salgado in Portuguese means salty. So perhaps this is where the filmmakers got some of the title from. Uh, and one of the co-directors of the film is actually Salgado's son, so very possible. Speculation, though. Um, so salt of the earth from the Bible. I'm going to read a little bit here 
uh, from it's a Christian website, just kind of giving a um, interpretation of Christ's teachings on salt of the earth. You know, never would I have thought that later in my life I would be sitting in a small little cabin in the middle of the forest in the mountains alone reading through a <laughs> radio stream to the to the public bible passages can't say i saw that coming nonetheless here we are so in three of the four gospel accounts jesus connects his disciples to salt in matthew 5:13 he tells them explicitly you are the salt of the earth but if the salt loses its flavor how shall it be seasoned it is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. In Mark 9.50, Jesus says, Salt is good, but if salt loses its saltiness, how will it become salty again? Maintain salt among yourselves and keep peace with each other. In Luke 14.34-35, he shared a similar thought. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Salt has been used as fertilizer in small amounts and for flavor, so the idea being put forth here is that salt is to promote good things, as Christ's disciples are to promote divinity and positivity and so on. Christ says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. So just some interpretation. Without salt, food can become tasteless, and without salt, food can quickly rot. If Christians, or you could say spiritual folk, don't think it needs to be exactly Christians, right? Are the salt of the world, and then the job of said people is to make the world more palatable to God while being a force against corruption and decay. When we use God's perfect law as the standard for how we live our lives, we accomplish both of those things. In this respect, salt is a metaphor for the peace, graciousness, and wisdom that allows us to interact with others in a godly way. So, how does this tie into the work of Sebastio Salgado. This idea of we are on earth to be of service, to we are to create positivity, to be transformative agents for light. And the story put forth in Salt of the Earth, which is a documentary on Salgado's life and work, is extraordinarily profound and deeply, deeply moving and <coughs> does not require any connection to anything spiritual for that to be felt so a little bit of backstory which they cover in the documentary and salgado uh he grows up in brazil on a very lush farm um and very beautiful place has a tropical kind of vibe he winds up leaving the country of brazil in the 70s because of the military dictatorship exiles him and he flees to france where he picks up photography during this time in exile, his family farm eventually turns into a complete dust bowl. Virtually all the vegetation dies. It's a completely wasteland, lifeless uh, 
sad place like the documentary while they're depicting salgado and his raising of a family as two kids one of his kids winds up having down syndrome which is just an interesting thing to reflect upon about i was thinking to myself you know i have one child and i can't imagine having two kids which i can imagine it but i'm just saying that like one is there's plenty of work that goes into having one so it's like okay two that's a whole other level that's doubling the workload but then having a second child one with down syndrome and managing to travel to something like 130 countries and, you know, living the life of your dreams as a, as a uh, photojournalist and documenting and going on all kinds of crazy adventures and stuff just kind of shows you how we limit ourselves. And I wasn't actually planning on talking about this, but spontaneity is the best medicine, so I'm going into it, which is when I was deciding, my wife and I, to have children, I'm going to bring her on the podcast to interview her. <laughs> And, uh, you know, there was this sense of like, oh, are we going to be blocking ourselves creatively because now we have to take care of a child? And legitimate fear, right? If anyone has any kind of artistic yearning, so to speak. And what we have found is that quite the contrary, that having a child activates you, organizes you, motivates you, inspires you, makes you think outside of the box and gets your uh, your butt moving in a good direction. And when you do have space and time to do something creative, as I have at this very small window right now to do this podcast, you seize the opportunity because, hey, if you don't do it now, it's just not going to happen. So it's a really powerful uh, energy for getting things done. And I thought this was cool because, you know, to have two kids, not just one, and have one that has Down syndrome and still be able to do something as transformative and globally uh, expressive as Salgado. Pretty amazing. So, his desire to become a photographer, uh, it plays into his philosophy of social responsibility. Um, he has a strong connection to humanity, and my uncle is actually a photographer, and I've heard him talk about this. He's traveled through Bangladesh and India and Pakistan and Peru and some other really cool places and how the camera becomes a tool for, for bridging the gap between yourself and the local population in a very humanizing way, not necessarily in a objectifying way, but it connects you in authentically to people. So not in a tourist sense, but you get the people's story when you get their photo or vice versa, you get their story, then they're open to giving you the photo. And it can uh, provide dignity and empowerment and a voice to people that ordinarily uh, might not have one. And this is sort of Salgado's philosophy. And he covers pretty intense stuff. He covers war, starvation, genocide um, South in South America, but also a lot in Africa and also in Europe. And at one point he is actually covering the genocide occurring in Europe and Bosnia. And then the same year he goes over to cover the genocide in Rwanda in Africa in the 90s. And this is a pretty intense moment for him within his life path of just attempting to do something very positive, you know, bringing the world's focus and awareness into devastating, destructive, horrifying catastrophes, moral, ethical, social, political failures, and the toll that it starts to take on him. Before going into that, uh, 
there I found some quotes from Eduardo Galliano who wrote a really excellent book that I read something like eight years ago when I traveled through South America for the first time called Open Veins of Latin America, which is a book about more or less the horrors and repercussions of European colonialism and imperialism in South America. Excellent book. Highly recommend it. Very good to understand what that continent has been through since essentially the landing of Columbus. And it's important to understand things like colonialism and imperialism because it continues to exist to this day. And a lot of what uh, we see in many ways is a byproduct of that colonialism being sustained. And so Open Veins of Latin America is an excellent book. It's important to understand these things and have a lot of respect for Eduardo Galeano. I believe he was from Uruguay and he was exiled and attempting to thwart the dictatorships that were existing in South America. And there's a couple questions poised to him about Salgado's work. And so I'll read the question and his response. So which of your emotions and senses come alive in the opening sequence of Salgado's photographs of the gold miners? And he's referring to the Serra Pelado gold miners in Brazil, which Salgado photographed in 1986, documented in the, the film, and it, it's quite insane. It looks like something from a horror movie almost because you have uh, thousands of workers in this giant hole, mud hole, um, hundreds of feet deep, carrying heavy sacks of dirt up to 120 pounds up these massive, massive ladders. Um, it's just like, it, it's hard to fully explain it. it. People just on top of one another in this mud bowl, digging out the earth and bringing the earth out. And they're being paid only 60 cents uh, for each trip of this 120 pound sacks brought up the ladder. It looks kind of like how you would imagine the pyramids would have been built or something like that if you actually believed in the narrative about slaves or something building the pyramids. However, these people are not slaves, according to the documentary. They look like slaves, but they're actually there uh, trying to strike it rich, finding gold. And they're just in this pit of like disease, violence, and danger. And they're quite shocking, the photographs. And Eduardo Galeano's response in the photographs, are these photographs... These figures of tragic grandeur, carvings in stone or wood by a sculptor in despair. Was the sculptor the photographer, or God, or the devil, or earthly reality? This much is certain. It would be difficult to look at these figures and remain unaffected. I cannot imagine anyone shrugging his shoulder, turning away, and sauntering off whistling. So that right there, I think, is a good summation of Salgado's work as a whole, is that no one could look at his photos and just shrug your shoulder and turn away and go off whistling uh, the impact that they have is quite profound regardless of where he is or what he's photographing because he also uh, later in his career does things related to just natural landscapes and animals and all of it is just like shockingly and strikingly beautiful and impactful and Eduardo Galeano says Salgado's photographs a multiple portrait of human pain and at the same time invites us to celebrate the dignity of humankind. Brutally frank, these images of hunger and suffering are yet respectful and seemly. Having no relation to the tourism of poverty, they do not violate but penetrate the human spirit in order to reveal it. Salgado shows some, sometimes shows skeletons, almost corpses with dignity, although all that is left to them, they have been stripped of everything but they have dignity. 
That is the source of their ineffable beauty. That is not a macabre, obscene exhibitionism of poverty. It is a poetry of horror because there is a sense of honor. And as I'm reading this, I'm thinking specifically about the work Salgado does with uh, the genocide that occurred in Sudan and Ethiopia, where you have these you know, thousands and thousands of people just fleeing uh, war and oppression, and they're just wandering through the desert and just collapsing out of a lack of food and water. At the same time, as, as Galliano reflects, there's something, the dignity and the power of the people and their spirit as they're going through this incredibly, insanely horrific, trying experience comes forth in the imagery. So after he went to Bosnia and then came to Rwanda and uh, the level of violence there, you know, tens of thousands of people murdered, uh, he was left physically and emotionally drained, to say the least. He says, I was sick. I was not well. I had lost faith in our species. Uh, his immune system, compromised by stress, gave way, and he came down with a series of infections. An abscess had to be drained. His doctor, alarmed by what he saw, told Salgado that his body was dying and urged him to take a break. Heeding the advice, Salgado, accompanied by his wife, spent three months recuperating in a small village in Brazil. And he points out in the documentary that like, the level of depravity and violence and catastrophe is not something that was limited to one continent or one culture, or one people, one race, one ethnicity, one religion. It's in South America. It's in Europe. It's in... Uh, Africa and of course too right you know you have like the same situations happening with Aboriginal people in Australia of course with the Tibetan people in Asia and many other places Cambodia right and then you know of course the Native American population in North America and the ripple rippling effect repercussive effect of those policies state-sponsored violence and so on these things existing everywhere of course the Middle East uh, so this is something he says, I lost faith in, faith in our species, right? This is not just one place, one people that's the problem. This is something that's in the collective psyche that is a fundamental problem expressing itself through the clashing of different groups of people. So during this period, Salgado had time to reflect on what he witnessed. He remembers feeling despair and his dreams were troubled, but there was no abiding symptoms of PTSD. Rather, what he experienced was a pervasive sense of sadness coupled with the conviction that mankind, humankind, had lost its way. With his health improved, Salgado began a new project that broke with photography. He returned with his wife and family to his parents' farm in Brazil, which he had inherited, a land that during his childhood had been burdened and lush, but which over the years had been destroyed by devastation, deforestation, and drought. Salgado's philosophy in life has much in common biocentrism, an ethical belief that asserts the non-human value in nature. To him, the destruction of human life that he had witnessed never more brutal than in the Rwanda or the Congo, but in other insidious ways no less cruel elsewhere, was mirrored by violence inflicted on the land and the ruination of the environment. But whereas his photogra uh, photography could not reverse the tide of human misery, when it came to land... That had, to use his description, been completely violated, there was the agency where he could take action. He could do something about the land, where there was a sense of powerlessness, perhaps, about 
um, the political upheaval and violence between human beings, there's something that could be done, a sense of agency about restoration towards the earth itself. So his wife, Leela, suggests they replant the rainforest, uh, specifically on the farm where he grew up. And in the film, they kind of talk about this, like this is where you came out of the earth. This is the place where you uh, came into existence and importance of taking care of that area and being a steward of that area and being in service to that area. So his wife, Leela, uh, as we said, suggested they replant the rainforest in that area. And so they decided to plant um, two million trees, which they did over the course of 20 years. And this pretty insane work, right, to be able to plant two million trees. And it's kind of funny because I realized after the documentary that I had seen a meme about Salgado, seen a Facebook meme about Salgado, where they're saying, oh, you know, photographer, wildlife photographer, uh, reforest a, you know, distraught part of earth in Brazil over the course of 20 years, plants 2 million trees. And I remember looking at it and being like, this, this is real, this seems kind of fake because they show the before and after, it's like totally barren. And then it becomes this like epic, lush, beautiful rainforest, jungle situation with all kinds of wildlife and such. And... I was like, there's no way this is real. But then once we finished the documentary and, you know, they're showing footage of all the work that they've done over the 20 years, I was like, oh, this is real. This is what they were talking about. This is about Salgado. I was like, my God, it's amazing. <laughs> and um, right there is such a powerful exemplification of be the change you wish to see in the world. So... They wind up uh, forming a ecological institute there called Instituto Terra, and they make the land a national park. And they their ecological institution is dedicated to promoting the restoration and conservation of forest land. And it's just quite incredible the footage of what they show. They did what they're able to do with the land because prior to the um, the reforestation efforts, they have footage. Uh, of the farm when it was in its wasteland zone and it's quite astonishing to look at that and think oh you can resurrect that you can rebuild that and you know rebirth that situation i think the majority of people would look at that and say well there's nothing good there it's all over you know throw in the towel for that situation time to move on uh, and then seeing the potential and the capabilities of reforming and transforming you realize that things are possible that perhaps you have never conceived of before. And during this time when he's doing the healing work on himself, he goes into the Brazilian Amazon and this is where he takes the photographs for the book Amazonia, contacting, you know, the Yawanawa tribe and the Zoe tribe and the Yanomami Hunikun. And uh, there's some cool little anecdotes there when he's with one of the tribes, which are uncontacted essentially and there are ordinances in place by the brazilian government where you can't interfere with them on any level you can't impact or change their culture because there's a effort to preserve their way of life and not just send them the way of devastation and industrialization which i suppose can happen just through minor interferences so he's with them and uh the anecdote some guy says uh sebastio give me your knife when you go 
And he replies, I'm sorry, I cannot give it to you because I cannot corrupt your culture. It's forbidden by the government. And he says, oh, no, it's okay. Because your knife is so important. When you're ready, <laughs> when you're up in that small plane above the forest, just throw your knife out. I know this forest like the lines of my hand. I can find your knife anywhere inside the forest. <laughs> and right there, it just kind of exemplifies like the power of some of these indigenous cultures where, you know, on some level, he's probably just being playful and joking. But on another level, the way that they convey it through the film is he was being quite serious. Uh, the power and the wisdom and the depth of knowledge that these Amazonian tribes have through their connection with nature, uh, not in spite of it. You know, what I mean by that is you look at our culture, you could say that a lot of the knowledge of this culture, arguably, has been uh, an attempt to get away from nature, right? A lot of the technologies we've created has been a way for us to invent artificial environments to block out the natural world. While in the case of, you know, the Yanomami of the Zoe tribe, they uh, their knowledge and wisdom comes from immersing themselves fully in the environment and being in harmony with it and it's quite profound their level of consciousness and their level of connection to the earth and their capacity to exist within it in a very profound and empowered way a lot of balance uh, and if you've never heard of the zoe tribe they have this long wooden plug it's like it look like about eight inches long they just insert through their lower lip uh, and I was reading that they, they take like a sharp bone from a spider monkey's leg and they basically cut open the bottom of their lip and then they insert this big wooden plug. Very unique uh, style. And I suppose this is part of their initiation rites. They're like a polygamous tribe, which is another interesting thing, both men and women. And uh, the environment that they live in, it's like they create these like palm leaf huts and it, it looks like something out of a fairy tale. It's pretty magical. And uh, as they get older, they have these larger plugs that are inserted, and they wear these very elaborate headdresses. So it's pretty pretty deep culture in a lot of ways, uh, and a lot more is kind of revealed just through the imagery of his time spent with the tribes. And so they take a sharp bone from a spider monkey's leg, and they basically create an incision in the mouth and they put in a tiny embedder bot when girls are about seven and boys are nine years old and as they grow older larger plugs are inserted which is kind of interesting and the tribes are polygamous where men and women both have multiple partners and women wear elaborate headdresses made from uh, feathers from a king vulture and, and they paint their bodies with this vibrant red paste made from crushing seeds and they're just like a really beautiful tribe of people in the way that they live and the, the hammocks that they make out of these palm leaves and everything. It, it's it's quite it's quite profound just to see the stark contrast of the photography from Amazonia that Salgado comes back with versus photographs of uh, let's say oil workers in Kuwait after Saddam Hussein lit fire to the oil fields trying to put out the oil f oil fires. Uh, really crazy contrast and uh, someone wrote here what we learned about Sebastio and Lila Sagado's reforestation project we recall the advice of the Sufi mystic poet Rumi start a huge foolish project like Noah it makes absolutely no difference what people think of you 
And this person then wrote, sometimes we hold back because we think that our hopeful enthusiasm will seem out of place in our cynical and downbeat world. Resist that attitude, initiate a bold project that will benefit others and give the next generation reason to hope. So just a really beautiful, uh, full embodiment of the philosophy of be the change you wish to see in the world. And the documentary is just beautifully done with lots of his photographs and interviews with his family and people that knew him and Sebastian Salgado himself as he's still alive of course and all done in black and white and as I mentioned his son is the co-director so it has this very like intimate type of um, lens on it where there's a certain connection to the subject matter that uh comes through in in the way that the film is created so i really recommend people watch it because i feel like it's someone who has lived life in a very intense and full way and has grappled with these very intense existential spiritual questions about suffering and pain in the world and injustice and war and so on and conflict and then found a really beautiful uh shamanic natural healing way to deal with these things and just seeing the the contrast of the farm from where it was back in the 80s to where it is now it's just like the transformation is totally unbelievable i had actually come across some internet memes about his uh his land and, and they're saying oh photographer you know reforest uh plot of land over 20 years and plants 2 million trees and I, I honestly thought it was fake I thought it was just like a Facebook meme and then I watched a documentary and I was like oh this is who they were talking about they're talking about Sebastian Salgado <laughs> and it's like wow this is so real and just realizing like the potential that one has when you're fully motivated and you're understanding like what it is that you're here for and what you're supposed to be doing on earth and the capacity that we all have to transform things around us and so I mentioned my friend Yasha. He's the one that actually uh, recommended the documentary to me as I was talking to him about the book. And their community out in Colorado Springs is uh, kind of in a similar type of work of reforestation because a lot of the land out there has been uh, deforested and so on. And so they're, they're learning to rejuvenate the soil and so on. It's really beautiful. Um, and... Yeah, that's just something to share. And then what was interesting was a, about a week after watching this, the whole thing that happened with Israel and Gaza took place. And, you know, I've been to Israel at least twice. I feel like I've been there three times, but I'm having a hard time remembering the third time. been there twice. Um, I have friends that live there. Uh, my mom is a political scientist uh, at the University of Virginia. She's been there since, I think, 2014. 15 or something like that and when she was getting her PhD up at the new school she had a good friend who is Israeli and they, they studied together I was there and I spent some time with her her name is Ronit and we were I was hanging out at her house and I was talking with her and I was talking with her uncle who uh, his family had fled from Saddam Hussein in Iraq um, when the Jews are being persecuted there to Israel, really crazy story. Just on why they had to flee on horseback and they were being shot at and all kinds of crazy stuff. And have a lot of Jewish friends. I have a lot of Jewish friends that I live with and have lived with for many years. And 
really have loved my time in Israel. It's a really beautiful place. And it's really cool to go there because of all the, the history and everything. And I've also been over to Palestine, uh, specifically over to Nazareth, where Christ was supposed to have been born. Remember when we went there, there was like a fake Starbucks. It was it was called, I don't remember what it was called. It was called like Star Clucks or something like that. And they had all the imagery and the logos of Starbucks. But they had just like modified everything ever so slightly so they could basically scam it. It was one of the more funny things that I've seen. <laughs> just to bring a little light into a very intense subject matter. But I'm just sharing that I have a kind of like a personal connection there. Like I spent time with, with a number of Orthodox, with Hasidic Jewish people, with totally atheistic Jewish people, with um, plant medicine Jewish type people, like all across all across the board. And, um, you know, I have a really strong tendency within myself to always want to like side with the oppressed people. And the situation over there is something that I just feel like needs to be spoken about on some regard from my podcast and uh you know my teacher has been talking about it and there's a lot to be said about it over the situation once the soviets leave completely and you know lo and behold what happens right um and this idea right that like terrorism is something that is created through terror if you terrorize a group of people, you should not be surprised when they enact terror back upon you. Uh, simple cause and effect. And, you know, Malcolm X was intensely criticized for saying in response to the violence in the United States, um, he said, you know, this is an example of when the chickens come home to roost. This is what's happening uh, here in the United States. Because of America's involvement in Vietnam, you export violence abroad. Do not be surprised when violence comes back home in your back door. And, uh, you know, there's been some people who said the same thing this September 11th, where it's basically like, you know, if you want to say they hate us for our freedoms, that's a great talking point. That's a good way to create like a very black and white dichotomy. Us and them, there's good guys and there's bad guys. Okay. All right. Let's go get the bad guys. You know, that's that's a cool, like, cowboy-type language that's good for a Hollywood movie, but it doesn't really explain the reality of the situation. In a few minutes of, you know, research, you can discover, like, oh, these people are have been uh, totally brutalized and oppressed and uh, desecrated for decades, and, and they're tired of it, and um, this is a, a retaliation for terror that's been exported to them. Um, and so I think, you know, it's the same thing needs to be said about, too, like, with, within the Palestinian situation it's like you occupy people and and you kill them and you oppress them and you restrict how many <laughs> calories they're getting per day like you calculate that intentionally so you can control the amount of food that's going in there and uh you know have an apartheid state and state-sponsored violence and like yeah that's what's going to happen terrorism because you know you export terrorism terrorism comes back what is the solution we know what the problem is the problem is violence that's really obvious and, you know, the solution is like that there people need to learn how to forgive one another, that people need to learn how to live and work together with one another. And that's a, a solution that if you're living there, you have to figure out how to deal with that. But most of us are not living there. Most of us are living in our own uh, 
Israel-Palestine situation within our own heart at times and within our own interactions with other people. We need to look at the situation and use it as a metaphor for saying, okay, I need to learn to become more peaceful. I need to release myself from the need to take vengeance upon another person. Uh, you know, what kind of a counterterrorism strategy is bombing a hospital full of children and um, innocent people? In the same sense, what kind of uh, counter violence situation is screaming at people and throwing things and trying to do things in spite of other people? So just looking at this situation, it's like, yeah, there is a reality to it. We're not denying the reality. But at the same time, like, what is it telling us to do? It's telling us we need to confront the violent aspects of ourselves and that we need to take ownership for our misgrievings and wrongdoings and understand where can peace and where can forgiveness and burying the hatchet, where can those values and practices come into play in our own personal life and what are the methodologies for implementing them uh, and also understanding right the problem is not other people I think that that phrase in a lot of ways sums up what we're trying to get at is that the problem is not other people yes other people will do things other people will take retribution and promote violence but in a closed circuit loop, if you get yourself out of it, the loop will also fall apart or be forced to change on some level. And the more that we can extricate ourselves from the cycles of abuse and violence, both within and without, in terms of our inner and outer behavior, the more that we can uh, promote peace in the world and that we can be more of a beacon for light and healing and the intensity of anger that one might feel and rawness of emotion and i say this because like in my own sense i've i've this specific situation with israel and palestine is like it just provokes potentially raw, uh pretty raw emotions for a lot of people there's just something about the nature of it you know i was listening to uh someone described the conflict and saying like this is an example of colonialism that uh you know a hundred years ago no one would care about because it was kind of the way that things were done colonialism was a part of the global landscape it's how countries interacted with each other a hundred years ago it was just part of how things were but you're talking about I mean, maybe it's more like 150 years ago 200 years ago but not that long ago but it's something that's like this idea of occupying a territory and a people and controlling resources that go in there and subjugating them to terror and violence and then dealing with their uprisings, like that's something that happened a lot. And it was just like, yeah, that's what's happening in the world. But the rest of the world in a lot of ways, according to this uh, researcher was saying, like, it's kind of been outdated. It's not something that's really acceptable anymore, but this situation here has not been resolved. And so it's particularly a fiery debate because, one, you have the people who were expelled from Europe after dealing with racism and genocide and anti-Semitism and so on. And now you have this, like, bizarrely crazy 
ironic situation where like that culture is now inflicting it on another culture and perhaps on some level it's not really like that crazy or ironic because this is what we're talking about with this cycle of violence and abuse where it's like things get passed down the line just like when you look at a child that's been abused it's they are victim to a certain extent but then later in life how often more often than not does that child then inflict the same level of violence upon other people in their family or themselves or others that they care about and so just understanding right like this is all coming down to cycles of violence and as above so below we're trying to understand more importantly from the perspective of someone like Sebastio Salgado like we're aware of this but we're going to shift our focus to where we have agency and where we can promote change and justice and peace and it's not in reading news articles and posting things on the internet um and it's definitely not about uh getting flared up about like one side doing this or that because uh, of course like what would you do if you were in charge of a country and you have a militant organization that comes in and murders you know 1200 people you have to do something right that's the position that that person has found themselves in all these things are pretty intense and in certain ways like confusing you could say on one level but ultimately like the answer can be simple which is like there needs to be a peaceful solution and an integrative solution uh a friend of mine who lives in israel who is, is israeli uh went to school with my mom in new york city uh and spent some time with her in tel aviv and remember one of her uncles was there and he was sharing with me like that when he fled with his family when he was very young he still remembers fleeing iraq from saddam hussein uh, and they escaped on horseback and they were getting shot at and stuff like that so you can understand like the intensity of the the jewish situation and trying to find a homeland and trying to find peace and trying to find a place of being safe and so on um, but i was talking with uh my mom's friend and she was saying like you know everyone's talking about got to give these uh, the Jewish people their state back or it belongs to Israel, it belongs to Palestine. She's like, no one's talking about this idea of like a one-state solution of just integrating the cultures together. And I feel like this is a really important thing to understand is that we're in a moment, we're in the second degree of the age of Aquarius as stated by initiatic elders, meaning that the old ways of human beings relating to each other through like identity politics and my race, my religion, my gender, my culture, my political party, my family, blah, 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 all these things that divide humanity into different segments and groups. If we're rigidly stuck to those things, we are going to get burned really bad because those things all are going away. It is the end those things are done that is uh old news and that's what the new baktun of the mayans usher was ushering in in 2012 right it wasn't the end of the world it was the end of the cycle of the old world and now comes in the new world and that's what the mayan tradition was trying to illuminate us towards which is that everything that is no longer in service of these more humanistic and higher level vibrational reality and connection is going to be ablaze and in a lot of ways this is what i feel is happening with israel and palestine and specifically right um the energy of pluto uh 
Pluto being in Capricorn for quite some time. And, you know, that's all about like structure, hierarchy, power, uh, traditional values, and, you know, doing things the right way and so on. <laughs> By right way, I mean like the powerful way, if that makes sense to you. And Pluto being like this very intense destructive force. And now it is back and forth transitioning to Aquarius. And this is the energy, right, of like humanistic, technological, social change, like cosmic vision, like free thinking, independent thinking, revolutionary thinking in the medicine of Pluto, which is like destruction and chaos and transformation and change. And the last time Pluto was in Aquarius, you had both the French Revolution and the American Revolution <laughs> when it entered into it. And you know, what I feel is happening because Pluto first went into Aquarius on my birthday this year on March 23rd, and then it retrograded and it's kind of been going back and forth a little bit. I think next year in the fall, if I had to guess, it's going to be permanently in Aquarius. But this situation feels like the last remnant of Pluto in Capricorn, of like the traditional power structure and authority, which is totally outdated not in service towards the people, not in service towards humanistic values, but in service of like traditional hierarchy and boundaries and borders is trying to assert itself over something that is completely out of context anymore for the world that we live in. It's like this totally, this from like the 1800s. Like this would have been fine in the 1800s if you did this. I don't mean from like my own heart and humanistic ethical values but i just mean in terms of like the social normative behavior like this kind of violence would be something that would be uh accepted you could say from the global culture you know from from most people um which is obviously really disturbing but nonetheless it's kind of the truth right that colonialism was something that was acceptable in the 1800s and so on but it's totally out of date now and it's not gonna last and they say that Pluto and Aquarius is very, very bad for uh, Plutarchs, people who are, you know, power-hungry, greedy people that want to control, manipulate others, you know, the Putins of the world and Donald Trumps and the uh, Kim Jong-il, Benjamin Netanyahu, all these people that are using violence and force and aggression and to assert their boundaries and their borders and their uh, delusional version of what reality is and feel that in order to protect that delusional version of reality they need to subjugate violence onto others so just some context for things because when you look at it i think from like this astrological and mystical uh cyclical changing way cyclical in the sense of like these these different ages coming to be different bakhtuns the mayans say in different uh, astrological ages and we're seeing right this is the the last one of the last holdouts of like the old way in a very um it's getting really intense because it's just like with um you know the <laughs> when you have a um when you have a like acne right it's like all the stuff comes up to the surface right when it's about to get out all the pus and everything and it becomes this really afflicted, intense, visually disturbing thing. And then it pops, right? And it breaks. And then, okay, all this stuff is released. And then the cleaning process goes through. My teacher has just been talking about how this is like a very intense moment of 
cleaning and healing for the human species. And it can look really nasty and gnarly because it is, but also because it's like everything's being brought to the surface. All the stuff that, in a lot of ways, it's been happening, right? I, the, the situation with Israel and Palestine is nothing new. It's been happening for decades. It's just that it's reaching this like crescendo of violence and intensity uh, because it needs to come to a closure. It's no longer in alignment with the new age that's coming. So what we can take away from Salgado in this situation is that like, if we align ourselves with the old age, expect violence and chaos in your life. Like that's, that's where you are orienting yourself. But if you're opening yourself up to a more progressive, humanitarian, egalitarian, conscious, awakened, spiritually connected place where we're not creating division and boundaries, uh, then we can expect a lot more light and harmony to come into our lives. And they say, right, with, uh, with chaos comes great opportunity. You know, anytime there is a mistake or a failure, that is a hidden opportunity in disguise. So the more that we can take a look at what is happening in the world and see the quote-unquote darkness and violence as an opportunity in disguise to bring in light and compassion and healing and balance and forgiveness, then we can put ourselves on top of a very, very powerful wave that uh, is coming with this new age and this new cycle as put forth by the Mayans. Uh, and, you know, it's funny with the Mayans, right? Like the Christians say, like, oh, the Earth's been here for like 5,000 years, and the Mayans are like, really? You know, <laughs> we've been counting for like 25,000 years. That's interesting perspective that you have. <laughs> so when you look at the cultures that have been systematically in tune with the cycles of life and what's been occurring with the cosmos and the stars measuring and observing and living in accordance with nature they're telling us that there's a very big wave coming and we have two positions to put ourselves on right of course there's probably a million different places in between those two positions but more or less the one is we can either get crushed by that wave by clinging to the old mannerisms and behaviors and programs of the past and society of the past the old system or we can open our minds to the new cosmic forces that are coming into play and learn to embrace these humanistic spiritual values and find ourselves uplifted and surf that wave into a very beautiful and incredibly empowering and mesmerizing reality so the ch there's always a simple choice, right? They always say there's a choice between love and fear. And and that that's what so much of this boils down to. Like, there's com po complexities within the politics of Israel and Palestine that are quite intense, and there's reasons to be upset about things, and you're like, yeah, you know, those people <laughs> were there, and then you just came in and kicked them all off the land and, and then put them into open-air prisons, and, you know, you're wondering why they're violent. It's like, okay. but And at the same time, too, like, you know, they who has a right to go and just kill a bunch of people because you're upset like what kind of a strategy is that and we can make all kinds of excuses for why one side might behave that way but ultimately like Mahatma Gandhi overthrew the most powerful empire the world ever saw through nonviolence. Uh, you know Martin Luther King civil rights movement nonviolence. 
and Malcolm X, uh, while he did say by any means necessary, amongst many other controversial statements, he went to um, Mecca, and when he was in Mecca, uh, in Saudi Arabia, he saw men, because only men were allowed in that area, uh, of all different ethnicities and races, but all Muslim, praying together, and he saw men who were white and black not just praying together but also interacting together being kind and friends with one another and realize like that those people didn't even have the racial programming that uh, white and black men had in the united states and that this was a totally learned and conditioned thing as martin luther king said you know no one is born into the world hating another race or anything like that something that's completely programmed and learned by a um, disturbed and traumatized culture and when Malcolm X returned from Mecca, he was a totally changed person and began to see the futility of violence as a way of initiating real change and transformation uh, in the United States with race relations and saw that peaceful humanitarian values were the way. I actually have a quote from Malcolm X in my high school yearbook. Um, <laughs> he says uh, he's at a... Um, traffic stop is in his autobiography and he ro- white guy rolls down the window and goes hey Malcolm X would you shake hands with a white man and Malcolm X just looks over and like looks him in the eye and says I would shake hands with a human being are you one and I always really love that quote super powerful quote this idea of like can we transcend what we look like can we transcend your race your gender your sexual orientation your ethnicity your social status whatever it is and and can you see that you are a human being and start to treat other people like you like they are human beings and how so many of these complexities within politics and social arrangements can just be immediately transcended and left behind instantly when we just start to see hey we're human beings part of a giant human family um if your loved one (laughs) committed a violent act against you the answer wouldn't be to commit a violent act against them like that's insane like why would you do that it's your loved one you would you would do something to help heal them realizing that they're sick and there would be some kind of a compassionate response and so just promotion of humanitarian values and and the importance of seeing that and like there's a really beautiful video on youtube of ram das after taking lsd for the first time or whatever time it was i don't know he looks pretty fresh in the in the interview. He's still clean shaven. He hasn't become Ram Dass yet. And he's saying like that when you take LSD and you have this experience, it, suddenly it's like all the things that were you were identified with your cultural identity, your age, your so- status, social status, your wealth, um, your gender, whatever it is, they just would fall off like clothing, and you start to see like your humanness come through and even a deeper aspect of your just pure consciousness come through and he says too like that they say all wars are civil wars because all men are brothers and this is i think a very important thing to understand right like that peaceful means can resolve situations and mahatma gandhi has proved that so even if what the israeli government has done to the palestinian people is wrong the palestinian response is also wrong like there's ways to to counteract violence and injustice peacefully 
and there are there's plenty of examples of it there's no excuse for just going out and just arbitrarily murdering people specifically peace activists so it's a powerful position to take when we say we're going to go the route of forgiveness and peace um and I think that's where a lot of people get confused is that they think that their agency and their empowerment is to be aggressive and to be resistant and violent. Uh, and in fact, if you just look at what arises out of that, it's just more violence and more aggression and more harm and more innocent people dying. And so it requires each one of us to see within our own personal life how can we choose to use peaceful means to resolve conflict. And of course, it's very tricky because we have a very intense animalistic nature that says this is mine and I have to protect this and this is who I am and so on. But the evolution, vibrationally speaking, of our consciousness is no longer in alignment with that. And so if we align ourselves with something that is outdated, we are gonna find ourselves in a very messy situation. So the recommendation is for us to do the inner work to prevent ourselves from finding ourselves in those kind of circumstances. And to understand uh, that all of this is about cycles. Cycles of time, cycles of violence, cycles of behavior. One thing that you do perpetuates another thing, sets an example and sets a tone for another thing. So what's coming to me is just a really strong meditation about like okay where am i cycling around it's kind of funny too because like the card of the day from the osho tarot deck is this card that's always been a little confusing to me and i feel like it's finally just making sense it's called the past lives card and in it's like an hourglass with two lizards on either side and then the hourglass are like all these different uh famous depictions of people are not famous but they're they're wearing like costumes that you recognize from like the renaissance or egypt or africa native american like they have these very like you know um strongly depicted costumes and the card reads the hands of existence form the shape of the female genitals the opening of the cosmic mother revealed within are many images faces from other times while it might be entertaining to fantasize about famous past lives it is just a distraction. The real point is to see and understand the karmic patterns of our lives and their roots in an endless repetitive cycle that traps us in unconscious behavior. The two rainbow lizards on either side represent knowing and not knowing. They are the guardians of the unconscious, making sure that we are prepared for a vision that might otherwise be shattering. A glimpse into the eternity of our existence is a gift. And understanding the function of karma in our lives is not something that can be grasped at will. This is a wake-up call. The events in your life are trying to show you a pattern as ancient as the journey of your own soul. The child can become conscious only if his past life, only if in his past life he has meditated enough, has created enough meditative energy to fight with the darkness that death brings. One is simply lost in an oblivion and then suddenly finds a new womb and forgets completely about the old body. There is a discontinuity. This darkness, this unconsciousness creates the discontinuity. The East has been working hard to penetrate these barriers and 10,000 years work has not been in vain. Everybody can penetrate the past life 
or many past lives, but for that you have to go deeper into your meditation. For two reasons. Unless you go deeper, you cannot find the door to another life. Secondly, you have to be deeper in meditation because if you find the door of another life, a flood of events will come into the mind. It is hard enough even to carry one life. So, <laughs> it's funny that this is the card, right? Cycles. Uh, and, you know, in the Tibetan tradition, they say that everyone you meet has been your mother. Everyone. An infinite life. Infinite manifestations. You've been doing this so many times. How many times? It's as if a bird was flying over Mount Everest with a napkin and it gently scrapes one grain of sand off the top of Mount Everest with that napkin. And it comes by every 1,000 years. The amount of time it would take to scrape down the mountain to nothing, that is how long you have been reincarnating, is what they say. <laughs> which is to say forever, which is really, really long. <laughs> and if you start to realize that... Everyone's not only your family, but it's like they're your mother. And so now you're going to go bomb all of them and shoot all of them? Like, what kind of insanity is that? You have clearly lost your way into a very confused, ignorant perspective. And as they're saying, this is a wake-up call. That's what all of these situations are. The pus coming to the top of your face is to say, Hey, man, you have not cleaned your face in a while. You need to take a shower. That's what the universe is trying to tell humanity right now with the situation. It's like, it's a very small situation in a lot of ways, what's happening. You know, uh, for instance, World War II, I think 50 million people died in World War II. Like an entire generation was wiped out. Israel and Gaza at the moment, you got like 11,000 people have died. On the scale of human catastrophe in comparison to other things, it's not a large number. Uh, what and i'm not trying to undermine it i'm not condoning it i'm not saying it doesn't matter from it, one person right is a tragedy right the, the, and, and everyone is connected to someone but what we're getting at here is just the sense that like this situation is creating so much attention in the global consciousness because it's it's just trying to wake us up to something it's trying to illuminate something that's completely out of balance in human consciousness and as a subsequent our culture right because how many people are dying a year from smoking Four hundred thousand in the united states like okay did you know that <laughs> like sixty thousand people die a year in india from snake bites no one it's not like a big deal though it's just like that's part of life it's what happens just like human violence is a part of life but there's 12,000 people a year that die from gun violence in the United States, and that's still something that is not even really registering in human consciousness as a big deal yet. It is for some groups, but for a lot of people it's not. But this situation with Israel and Gaza has become this massive thing and is because it's trying to illuminate something. It's trying to bring something larger than itself into human conscious awareness that is revelatory about the way that we have been living and the way we've been treating one another and of course it also reflects back into our personal lives how are we treating the people who we live with how are we treating ourselves are we forgiving ourselves are we violent towards ourselves are we destructive towards ourselves are we saying i did this so i have to punish myself and then we go out and we inflict punishment upon ourselves and other people so this is a wake-up call the events in your life are trying to show you a pattern as ancient as the journey of your own soul can you realize that 
we are one family and that you are attacking your mother. Okay. If you truly understood that teaching, if you were really a spiritual person, this is this holy war and a spiritual war. If you're really a spiritual and holy person, why are you so deeply ingrained in violence and devastation and destruction towards others? Clearly, you are not a spiritual person if you are not practicing peace and forgiveness. Peace is not a destination that you arrive at by murdering people. It's the way. Peace is the way. Mahatma Gandhi, he said, peace is the way. That is done. He would rather fast to death, starve, starve himself to death through fasting, than watch violence ensure as a method to obtaining power. And he wound up ending uh, violent conflict between Hindus and Muslims in India. Super amazing Bhagavad Gita-inspired approach to activism, right? Be the change you wish to see in the world. So understanding this idea about, you know, we wind up in situations based off of our karmic patterns of previous lives, but not trying to necessarily connect to who we were in a past life. It's not important. What's important is looking at the cycles that were caught in this life at this moment, at this time, in the present moment. This is where it's important. This is where the work is to be done. This is where true transformation and change can be initiated and activated. And I like this part where in the card it says, like, the two rainbow lizards on either side represent knowing and not knowing. They are the guardians of the unconscious, making sure that we are prepared for a vision that might otherwise be shattering. So a glimpse into the eternity of our existence is a gift. And I like this because the a vision that might otherwise be shattering. Our minds, as Aldous Huxley liked to say, keep the mind at large at bay. You know, it's a filtration device. Our mind is like a filter. It's filtering out the infinity of consciousness in the cosmos. As William Blake said, if the doors of perception were cleansed, then the life would appear as it truly is, which is infinite, uh, right? And once again, that's uh, <laughs> that was Jim Morrison's inspiration for the name of the band, The Doors, which he named after his own experiences with mescaline and peyote and reading Aldous Huxley's The Doors of Perception. And this understanding that this filtration device that we have is a dangerous thing. And the filtration device is the problem, not other people. When the filtration device becomes clogged and stuffy with belief systems and values and dichotomies of us and them, and other people are guilty and other people did the wrong thing, and I'm in a self-righteous position, then we know that there's something wrong with the filtration device and we need to get an oil change. <laughs> We need to get some Drano. We need to clean it out. We need to go to the indigenous people and ask them to heal us because there's something that is very sick that has gone on inside for too long. And our culture is a deep reflection of that. So when we clean ourselves of this filtration device and we start to come in contact with all of the clogged material, it's quite terrifying. It's quite horrifying. It's like that scene where Krishna, sorry, when Arjuna asks Krishna to reveal himself and he realizes that 
he is the totality of life including the monstrosity and all those aspects of it and how does one come to come to terms with that understanding that like what's happening on the outside is happening on the inside and that we're not limited to just you and me and myself and that we are the entirety of life and the cosmos so the two rainbow lizards providing us as a guardian as we traverse these terrifying realms of the unconscious and step into places of the mind where the vision could be otherwise shattering so the importance of having guides the importance of having elders the importance of having teachers the importance of having teachings of people who walk the path who understand what is lays beneath where these dichotomies and things come together as terence mckenna said we've you know we've gone to the farthest um trench of the ocean we've gone to outer space we've gone to the moon we've gone to the deepest jungle uh, yet we have not gone completely inside and it is there where we sense that all the contradictions may meet together so just understanding that what we're caught in what's really happening and what we're caught in and what i feel the the teaching from salgado from the middle east and reflections on things is look at yourself focus on yourself turn your camera towards yourself because have you not noticed that while you are trying to save the world you have been getting really sick <laughs> <laughs> that was what happened to Salgado. You're trying to shine a light on the negativity of the world and the devastation, and instead you're making yourself really, really sick, and then you're neglecting what's happening at home. And you need to take care of what's happening at home. You need to be uh, a steward of the earth. You need to be back in connection with nature. And so... I was having a funny time with this podcast when I tried to record it the other day because I, I was trying to get into like talking about all these uh, political analyses about situations in the Middle East because I grew up in a very political household. My mom's a political scientist and stuff, and I studied a lot of it, and I've traveled over the Middle East a number of times, and I was just like listening to myself. I was like, none of this is really at all what I want this podcast to be about. And I was like, I don't know, I'm not getting it. This is not it. So the, the focus is all on the wrong thing. And I realized, no, this whole podcast needs to be about people changing their focus to looking within towards their own self and not worrying about what's happening out there. Be aware of things. Don't put your head in the sand. Be like, you know, conscious of like what's happening and also why it's happening. But don't find yourself completely submerged by it otherwise you'll find yourself miserable you'll find yourself sick and then of what good are you in shining a light on anything no we need to shift our focus back inwards we need to turn inwards and you know that's what's happening right i haven't done a podcast since the summer and we're now in the fall this is what the equinox is all about the days get shorter the night gets longer the darkness is fewer but the darkness isn't bad. The darkness is an invitation for us to go inwards and asking us to explore and enter into the unconscious 
and yeah there's a time and a place for like the solar masculine energy to be doing 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 but the winter is asking us to go inwards and to connect to the light inside of us right this is the process the sun is going through as it goes from the equinox into the sun uh, the winter solstice as the new light needs to come forth and so our job of this time period of the fall is to not fear death and not look at death as a curse as ram das said death is perfectly safe <laughs> it's perfectly safe so you know when when we're able to somehow transcend the illusion that there's anything wrong with dying and meditate on our own mortality so many different things that are happening in life can take on a new slant if you're someone that fears death and thinks of it as evil then being a fundamentalist a religious fundamentalist makes a lot of sense i think it's a great perspective to take if you believe death is evil but if you are connected to a transcendental reality of the eternal present moment where death is something that is to be embraced wholly as a wonderful rebirthing transformative uh metamorphosis then we can look at what's happening in life as totally different and from a totally different lens not from a lens of not compassion and caring and taking action compassionate action but just a perspective of understanding of putting ourselves underneath from with a intention of humility humbling perspective under death like there's a teaching in death there's a renewal process and so that's what the energy of the fall is right in the equinox it's understanding of like what the life that came forth over the past year is going it's going and it's gone but that's not the end of it and it's good that it's going because we need to clear space for something else to come through within and without right like this is what we need to welcome in is we need to shift our focus yeah there's chaos and destruction all around us but you know it's a wake-up call to your circumstances which have been eternal that it's always been freaking chaos and confusion and madness all around <laughs> as i started the podcast saying like there's never been a boring time i don't like only a boring mind maybe pay attention like things have always been pretty crazy so understanding that like this is a endless cycle that we've been in for like lifetimes and if we want to get out we need to shift our cameras focus away from the tragedy of the world and turn it inwards and investigate like what is happening inside of us why do i feel this way why have i been behaving this way what is it that i need to clean what has been clogged up in my filter that needs to be released to open the way for this new humanitarian consciousness that's coming through and so this is a fairly perfect time to enter into that meditation and that yoga yoga right being union which is not about a posture that you can photograph and put on instagram it is a mindset connected to a series of practices to help bring about a revelation just about who you already are and always have been and understanding this is a great moment to just look within and to let go of so much of like the hustle bustle and all the chaos like oh my god there's a fire over here oh my god there's a fire over there oh my god this is burning hey have you not noticed that this whole place has been built on a fire it's not that there's a fire there over here the whole thing is just a giant fire pit 
we're all standing on top of a fire pit. Everything is burning. <laughs> in the Dhammapada, the, Bu- the Buddha says, uh, the world is burning, and are you laughing? <laughs> I suppose I am, but I'm not laughing at that, just more the the intense delivery of the statement. There's a really um, epic uh, recording of the Dhammapada that our community plays a lot, and it, it's read in this like really like hard knock kind of way, the deadpan, very matter of fact, and it's read just like that. And are you laughing? <laughs> Super intense. Um, I always find myself laughing, so like maybe I'm just not getting it. But <laughs> the the point being, like, yeah, there's chaos, man. There's death. Everything is being wiped out, destroyed. Just when things come together, they fall apart. But you know what? It's like it's okay it's okay that's that's kind of like the whole cosmic joke of everything that whatever happens somehow it's all okay and it's what needs to happen and that's not to say that we shouldn't from a human perspective be outraged by things that happen and that we shouldn't like try to make an effort to strive for like a more harmonious and peaceful and kind and compassionate world but it's also just to take understanding that you know, when Krishna turned into Shiva, destroyer of worlds, and showed us, like, holy God, um, that everything is, like, part of the whole cosmic mess, that we have to embrace that on some level. And that is a vision that, unless we have proper guidance, could be shattering. So, understanding. Uh, when we're seeking a vision to have proper guidance, whatever that looks like for you. So... Takeaways here, where are you pointing your camera lens? Yes, there's chaos out there, but have you become attuned to the amount of chaos that's inside of you? Because it's been reaching a boiling point as well, and it's important to do diligence and to clear all that out. So taking the proper time and space during the fall equinox to heal yourself so that when the light comes back in the winter, the days start to get longer and reach the crescendo in the summertime there's something potent and powerful and activated that we have to offer the world so it's a good time to meditate on like yeah i see what's happening but what can where's my agency where where can i reforest the earth where am i being called to remedy the situation from a deeper place right looking for the calling from a deeper place not just from an egoic place All right, good stuff to meditate about.